And so the woman who has, at some point in her life, had an unplanned pregnancy, whether it was because of an immoral decision, whether it was because she was a victim, whatever the reason, and she chose to have an abortion, she can be forgiven of that. If she obeys the gospel, if she repents, she will be forgiven of that. Now, dealing with that may be more difficult. And that's where, as a family in Christ, we need to have the type of... Welcome to the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. This ain't your grandma's podcast. Hey guys, it's Aaron here with the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast again. I just want to say a shout out to all you guys that are faithful listeners. I appreciate you very much. I don't know if I say that enough or ever, and so I'm making up for lost times here. Keep sharing the podcast, subscribe to the channel, tell others about it. If you haven't gotten a t-shirt, I have a few t-shirts left and you can share it that way. Today, we're just going to have the segment with Nate Bibbins, an interview on the subject of abortion. We're covering everything from what's fundamentally wrong with abortion. I asked Nate Bibbins what he thinks about the recent Roe versus Wade overturning. We hit some of the classic key arguments that come up from the pro-choice position, and we try to approach them fairly, um, although we are both pro-life, uh, pro-lifers, I guess you call it. And so um, we try to discuss this as both of us being preachers of the gospel, looking from God's Word, what does it have to say on some of these arguments? And then finally, uh, we talk about what, what about those women that are Christians and they have had abortions, they regret that, and they're having difficulty finding peace with God and receiving His forgiveness. We're going to talk about all these things in this episode 23 of the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. My apologies in advance because I just didn't have time to do a fake commercial, any foot and mouth or anything like that. I've been so busy the last two weeks that I'm just trying to really get content out to you guys. So I hope you enjoy this episode where I interview Nate Bibbins as much as I did. Here we go. Well, welcome back to another segment of The Main Dish on the podcast here. I got Nate Bibbins as advertised. Uh, Nate, tell everybody hello. Well, hello, everybody. This is Nate Bibbins. Uh, Nate, you're a preacher just down the road from me, and um, tell, tell people a little bit more about yourself if they don't know you. Yeah, I uh, moved to Tennessee back in 2016, and since then I've been working as a preacher with the Springer Road Church of Christ here in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. So that's uh, my primary focus. Also help out with a, a quarterly journal that's produced called the Christian's Expositor Journal, and locally, we also run a radio program called The Moment with the Master that runs on 105.3, and then we also put that online. So those are some of my main areas of focus. At one point, if I remember correctly, our, the churches that we preach at are 15 minutes apart, and um, you live closer to the church where I preached, and I live closer to the church where you preached for a time. And so yeah. we'd pass each other on Sunday morning. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, but we uh, we just moved to Lawrenceburg, so now I'm probably about the same distance from my church as you are. So, <laughs> yeah, um, I've known Nate. He's actually you've known my brother for a lot longer than you've known me. I think didn't you go with him to Russia one time when you were younger? No, I, I haven't gone to Russia with Nathan, but Nathan and I are right at about the same age. So we, we grew up when we were teenagers, um, speaking at young speakers meetings a lot. Uh, we got to know each other. 
that way. We actually lived in the same house for maybe about two months in Tulsa. <laughs> I, uh, I moved there, and he was living at the same house, but then he got a job somewhere else and moved out. But, uh, but we've known each other for a long time. Now, it wasn't you that created the body size hole in the sheetrock in that apartment, was it? I can honestly say that wasn't me. And beyond that, <laughs> I won't make any comments. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a lot of maturity for both of y'all since that time. but um, I'd like to think so, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on the podcast. And we're going to talk today about abortion, which at this point you probably are aware of that if you're listening. Um, recently, there is, of course, the Roe versus Wade overturning that I don't know how you haven't heard about it now. If you haven't, you've probably been living under a rock. Now, if you're like me, I don't watch the news. So that's a possibility that you do not realize that Roe versus Wade got overturned. But uh, it has. There you go. There's your news. And we're going to be talking about really just the, the subject of abortion that's at the heart of all that. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll, at the very beginning here in just a minute, I, I want to get your thoughts on on that overturning, just how it affects us spiritually and, and you know, just our culture and society. But, um, overall, I was actually thinking about doing a podcast, just a solo on this subject. And I, and I was, I don't know where I came across Nate Sermon on this just recently, you gave it Springer Road. And so I listened to it and I thought, man, this is excellent. And, um, it really said all the things that I wanted to say. So I was like, well, let's just do a podcast. So with that said, what are your initial thoughts about Roe versus Wade being overturned and what implications that has for us? Well, a couple of things or a few things. Um, one, I I did kind of watch it. I had seen, you know, this was building ever since the spring when there was the leak. Uh, so if you did follow any of the news, people kind of knew it was coming. It was anticipated with the Supreme Court that is currently in place. Um, but then I was surprised the day that it actually happened and the decision came out. I saw some things on social media, so I went and started doing some reading. And uh, it was actually that weekend that I went ahead and kind of finished up some of my thoughts. I thought that'd be a good weekend to talk about this this subject of, of abortion. I was like you. I had been thinking about a lot of it, just following some of the debates that were going on. But as far as the overturning, uh, I think that's a pretty deep thing to, to think about or should be. First of all, I think it's very positive in at least a couple of ways. First, I think it's always good when a nation's laws mirror or at least align somewhat with God's word. God's word in Romans says that the, the government is supposed to be the servant for the people, that they're supposed to protect innocent life. And so as we see our country make a decision that should hopefully help protect innocent life, that's a good thing. And that's, that's a positive thing. Uh, hopefully this will save lives. You know, that's the goal. That's the intent. And if overturning Roe v. Wade ends up saving lives, then obviously this is a very, very good thing. Now, that being said, while we should be joyful about it and people can celebrate it, I do think there are some other aspects to this that we have to just realize and think about. First of all, um, while it's wonderful right now, it's, it's probably not permanent. Now, Roe v. Wade lasted for half a century, but ultimately got overturned. Well, it remains to be seen if this decision remains for half a century. Obviously, there's a lot of people that are angry about this, that are working very hard to overturn it. So we can't place all of our faith in the Supreme Court or our Congress as far as protecting innocent life. It may not stay this way. And on top of that, um, while this is a good thing, it hasn't just solved the abortion issue. 
uh, I haven't been able to look up numbers, but since the Supreme Court made their decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, there have still been who knows how many abortions in our country. The decision basically placed the, the governance back into the hands of the states. And so states that were pro-abortion before are still allowed to be pro-abortion. They're still continuing to perform abortions, protect abortions. And so who knows how many abortions have occurred since then. And so this hasn't, contrary to what some people say, this has not banned abortion. It's still taking place in our country. And also, and I think this is one of the biggest things, while this is a good thing and we're glad to see laws changing this way, I think we also have to understand that laws don't change hearts. Um, everybody that was pro-abortion before the Supreme Court decision is still pro-abortion today. Everybody that was against abortion is against abortion still. And so while the law is a good thing, it's not actually changing people. And so as Christians, we have to think and consider, okay, what is it that actually changes people and changes hearts? That's what we really want to change in this discussion. Yeah, very good. Um, and some of the things that you're going to address in your conversation here, addressing just some bad arguments that people commonly make from the pro-choice position, that um, it's easy to be taken in by some of the just, I would say, buzz phrases, buzz arguments that are used. There's bad arguments on the pro-life uh, position as well. Um, but I think at the end of the day, when you cut the foam off the top, um, you know, God's word will stand behind the idea that life is valuable and should be preserved at all costs. Uh, so that gives you an idea where we're both coming from. I think everybody probably knows where we're coming from. Um, so yeah, that, that's good to hear on your thoughts on the Roe versus Wade, but from a scriptural standpoint, what do you believe is fundamentally wrong with elective abortion? I, I purposely call it elective abortion. Yeah. Um, well, I think that at the root of the abortion discussion is the question, is life valuable? And while I think most people on either side of the discussion would at least claim life is valuable, the question is, is that what we actually practice and what we actually do? And obviously this gets to another question we'll discuss here in a moment, when does life begin? But the root problem is the value of life. And the Bible is very, very clear on that, that life is valuable. Human beings are a special part of God's creation. Human beings are the part of creation that have been created in the very image of God. That alone gives value to human life. And I say human life, not that plant life and animal life are unimportant, but there is a special significance and importance that is put on human life. And it's to be valued, it's to be cherished, and it's to be protected. So from that foundation that life is valuable because humans are created in the image of God, the Bible sets forth a precedent from the very beginning that because of that, murder is wrong. Now after we get outside of the Garden of Eden, the first sin that we read about after that is murder when we read about Cain and Abel. And so we see from the oldest of Old Testament times that God has stood against the taking of innocent life. And we see that throughout the rest of scriptures. It's part of the old law. It's part of the Ten Commandments. And it permeates the scriptures in both the Old and the New Testament. All the way when you get to the end of the Bible in Revelation, murderers are part of the list there in Revelation 21 verse 8. And so from beginning to end, taking innocent life is condemned thoroughly 
throughout the Bible. And so if abortion is taking an innocent life, then it falls into that category of murder. And that's not to be inflammatory, that's not to be harsh, that just simply is the position here. If an unborn child is a human being and ending that pregnancy ends the life of a human being, then that falls under the category of murder and thus why scripturally we cannot support such a practice. Okay. Um, with that being said, taking a human life at the heart of all of the debate is really what is a human life. And so one of the things that I noticed from your talking about this in your sermon was um, you had a couple of really, we call them hot takes nowadays. I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with that. <laughs> I've started using that phrase a lot since I started podcasting. I guess, um, I don't know where I, anyway, you had a couple of hot takes from the scripture, as we say, and hit us with a couple of those. I just want everybody else to, to be aware of these. Well, um, I don't know if everyone will think these are hot takes or not, but hopefully they're, they're helpful. Um, kind of building on what we just talked about, the idea that life is valuable, murder is wrong. I then think it's interesting to notice in Scripture that while sin is sin, and I think hopefully we understand that, but there are times when God seems to be maybe particularly angered by certain types of sin. Not that one sin is going to make you be more lost than the other, but there are certainly things that God views and it certainly angers Him. And harming children is one of those things. Again, all the way from the Old Testament. When God speaks about child sacrifice, God uses vivid and graphic terms to show His displeasure. We won't read all of those passages, but you can read where God speaks about those things. One of the phrases He uses um, when He tells the Israelites not to practice child sacrifice like the other nations, He'll say, that type of worship has not even entered my mind. Essentially, God's saying that's unfathomable to him, to take the life of a child. Now, again, we've already seen, we've said taking innocent life is contrary to God's will, but it almost seems to up the ante, so to speak, when it becomes a child. Um, we see that throughout scriptures. Um, Jesus' warning in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6, um, when he talks about some of the children and he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones uh, to depart from me, and some say that's referring to the disciples, and that may be the case, but he's speaking in context of children, and so there's an idea there. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's some pretty harsh language from Jesus. That's a really graphic when Jesus says, for you to do something that harms a little one, it would be better for you to go tie yourself to a big rock and go drown yourself. That's pretty graphic, angry language from God. Um, the slaughter in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Um, we read that from a Christian perspective and we're terrified and we're mortified at the fact that Herod would go and have these children killed. The truth is the Bible is the only place that that's recorded. Herod did a lot of evil things, and given the size of Bethlehem, this may have been a couple of dozen of children um, under the age of two of male babies that were killed. It wasn't nearly the worst thing Herod did compared to all of the evil things that he did. This was not front-page news for Herod's time. Nobody else blinked an eye eyelid at this, but 
God calls attention to it. In fact, God quotes Jeremiah the prophet as he's uh, lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. And we see, I think what that's showing us is God is just as angry about these few children in Bethlehem as he was about the destruction of his own chosen nation and people. So God takes it very, very seriously when children um, are harmed and when they're, when they're hurt. And I think that extends also to the womb. A lot of people might say, okay, well, those are children. Those are children that have been born. Yes, that would be awful to kill a child that's already born, but that's not the same as an unborn child. But God's Word also provides personhood before a child takes the first breath outside of the womb. Uh, there are many passages that speak about that as well. Yes, yeah, so you gave a couple of passages, and that, that's particularly the ones um, that I was referring to there. Uh, you went through some, you know, that that go speak to what you just said about, you know, the innocence of children and killing children in the Old Testament. Um, I feel like those are probably the ones that get brought up, you know, commonly whenever you hear preaching on abortion and so forth. Um, and, and there, there is one or two from the Old Testament that you pointed out, which I thought were really good. Maybe they don't always get brought up, but there was also one from the life of of Jesus and John the Baptist when they were babies. That was the one that I was thinking, "Wow, I've not, I've not really thought about that one." Yeah. So when we talk about personhood in the womb, um, from even the Old Testament law, I think we see that. For example, in the in the law of Moses. Um, there was a law that if, if this was over in Exodus 21, I believe, if two men were fighting and somehow they, they struck a woman who was pregnant, um, the law says something along the lines that if they cause her to give birth prematurely and there's no harm, that would be to the baby or to the mother, then they were still fined. And the father of that child, the, that woman's husband, basically was allowed to impose whatever he thought was right. It's a very open-ended law. And that's pretty powerful because even though there was no harm, typically the law worked on a eye-for-an-eye principle. You paid whatever you caused. This was a case where even when there was no harm, there was still a penalty. So this goes all the way back to the Mosaic Law, and that shows that that child in the womb had personhood and had value. And then you've got, like you mentioned, some of the common phrases that are used or common passages, um, you know, Psalm 22 from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Those are the ones we read commonly, or commonly. But what you're mentioning, one of the points I made in the lesson I gave on this, is over in Luke chapter 1, Luke tells us about both the angelic announcement to uh, J- about John the Baptist's birth, and then also about Jesus's birth. And of course, Mary, after she receives that message from Gabriel, she travels um, to see her relative, who's going to be John the Baptist's mother. And by this point, she has miraculously conceived. Uh, so Jesus is in her womb. And we can just read that in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, starting there. It says that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now if we put the time frame together, 
We may not know exactly how far along Mary is, uh, but time-wise, she has to be in her first trimester. And when it comes to the abortion debate, that seems to be where the big battle is. A lot of people will start giving up in the second and third trimester. Yeah, we maybe we shouldn't be aborting babies that far along. But when we're talking about the first few weeks, maybe that's permissible. Maybe that's okay, that first trimester. But here in Luke chapter 1, Mary can't be further along, if you look at the timeline, than the first trimester. And yet, even then, when she meets Elizabeth, the fruit of her womb is already acknowledged. And not only is it acknowledged, but that first trimester being that so many people would call at this point just a fetus, just a clump of cells, Elizabeth remarks, is her Lord. And so this first trimester baby is still Elizabeth's Lord, even that early on. And I think if you take all of the rest of the passages out, you do what you say, okay, Psalms and Jeremiah, that's poetic, whatever you want to argue. The fact that Jesus is considered Lord, even in the first trimester in the womb of Mary, that shows that personhood is recognized by God from the earliest stages of development and conception. Life is valuable even at that point. If lordship exists at that point, life exists at that point. I just had a really, um, this is an odd question to your point, you know, he's Lord in the womb and obviously Mary, you know, she was a virgin. I'm when we talking about this, people that don't believe in God, this would just be an irrelevant conversation that I'm about to pose to you. But, um, for those that, you know, are Christians and that yeah, they still battle with is abortion right or wrong. Um, so Jesus, you know, he's a fertilized egg miraculously and he's in Mary's womb. <laughs> can, can a Christian think about taking the morning after pill, Mary taking the morning after pill and you know, that not being considered aborting the Lord and savior. Yeah. That's a, that's a great question, and I think that those questions are, are people struggle with those, um, but if we, if we believe that life begins at conception, and we see in this example that we just gave, the earliest stages that you can imagine Jesus exists when we put it in, in terms of Mary, I think we would all agree, no, it wouldn't have been right for her to do anything um, that would harm that child. I mean, she's been entrusted by God with the Savior. And so, no, she, she couldn't have done any of those things. And so that, that should play an important role in, as we think about what is or isn't acceptable those are tough conversations. They're tough subjects, but we need to wrestle with them. And I think erring on the side of protecting life is always, always the best. And I'm not a doctor, so I can't speak to how all of those things work. But if the goal of a medication is to reverse what has already happened, and that is a fertilized egg is to be destroyed, I would be very uncomfortable with that. That to me seems to be not any different than 
two weeks later, six weeks later, six months later, the goal is still reversing a life that has already begun. Yeah, I'm not asking people to make a hard answer on that. It's just interesting when you, you know, you think about normal babies, you think, well, it's just a baby. You know, for, for a Christian, okay, now that's different. Because we worship this baby, Jesus. And so you start thinking about how you would be consistent in your practices of um, maternal health and all that. It's it's an interesting thing to think about. I think it, it starts to bear out how consistent or inconsistent we are in our logic. Absolutely. And... And that is important because um, well, what you've said, you know, is helpful probably to frame this whole discussion. I recognize that the arguments I'm providing, what I talked about in that sermon I gave, it really was intended to be more for a Christian audience. I recognize that an atheist who doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in Scripture, isn't going to give any weight to these arguments. And that's fine. I understand that. But the problem is there are a lot of people claiming to be Christians that are involved in this debate, and even that try and use Scripture to defend the practice of abortion. Um, and that can impact people in the Lord's Church, and there's people that are, you know, they're wondering about that. So that's really who this is for. But that being said, as we discuss these things, questions like that are brought up. Of Okay, well, you say it's wrong for a woman to abort a child at six months or at six weeks, but you do this. Yeah. morning after, but whatever it is. And so we do need to be prepared to say, to defend our position. And maybe sometimes people make accurate points. Maybe maybe we do have things to learn um, as we fight for the right of life and protect, protecting babies. There are still things that we can learn and maybe other aspects that we should see where we can be better as well. Um. Going on, I I think we've covered some of the foundational stuff, and we can get into now some of the. I mean, we kind of really already water, waded into some of the argumentation that comes up a little bit. When does life begin? Um, from there, you know, I think about the most classic arguments that get brought up, and the one that I've heard so much, and I've actually um, I've heard Christians kind of just assume this same argument from a pro life, you know, argument standpoint. They just assume that when people bring up rape that this is a very prevalent cause of induced pregnancy and leading leading into elective abortion when people bring up that argument to clarify for for Christians that maybe don't know um, what what do you say to that generally I, I don't, you don't have to think of an actual person but what do you say if somebody brings it up generally? Well, if this is just a, a general argument by somebody uh, trying to defend <clears throat> abortion, then I think it's important to recognize that this is one of those arguments that it's not non-existent, and I don't want right. to say that, but it's not nearly as prevalent as people give credence to. Like you said, it's one of the main arguments that's used, um, but... I, I look, tried to look up some statistics. You know, obviously that's always an iffy thing. You can right. find all sorts of statistics. But I found one that was fairly recent. It was by the, the Guttmacher Institute where they interviewed women that were having abortions. And it was a fairly extensive study from what I recall. And they asked the reasons. And they could give multiple reasons. But the number one and number two, they were almost tied as to the reasons that 
a woman was having an abortion was, first of all, was having a baby would dramatically change my life. That was 74% of the, the answers. And really closely tied to that was, I can't afford a baby right now. That was 73%. So three out of four women were, are having an abortion based on that study because it will have an impact on their finances and their life. That's by far the majority of abortions. Um, as far as rape and incest, only 1% claimed it was because they were a victim of rape, somewhere less than 0.5%. So that's less than one half of 1% claimed incest. So when we're talking about the reasons abortions are happening, rape and incest are not the primary drivers. And that's not to say those cases don't happen. They do, and we can talk about that and the seriousness of that. But from a general perspective, if we're going to talk about whether abortion is right or wrong in these cases, that can't be a driving factor of why all abortion should be okay because it's not a driving factor of why women are having abortion statistically. It's a very, very small, small percentage there. So for the situations that do exist, that do fall in that category, okay, you know, both you and I admit that that does happen. Women get raped all the time, unfortunately. It's tragic. Um, woman then becomes impregnated. Is this creating some situational ethics scenario where, okay, in this situation... I'm speaking for God, and God says it's okay for you to to go and get a, an abortion. Yeah. And that's a that is a good good question, and we need to be able to talk about that. And I think we need to be able to talk about that sincerely and also compassionately. Like you said, it's a tragic truth um, that immorality exists, and not just fornication or adultery that lead to unplanned pregnancies. But there are men who choose to assault women, to rape women. Um, and when that happens, that is a vile thing. That is a wicked thing. And our hearts should certainly break for women that experience that type of assault in any form. Now, when that leads to a pregnancy, obviously, if there is ever an unwanted pregnancy, that would fall under the category of an unwanted pregnancy, certainly an unplanned pregnancy. And so is the woman, does she have the right to end that pregnancy in that situation? And I would still say no, scripturally. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 24 sets out a biblical precedent that I think is important. And that it's Deuteronomy 24, 16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. When a situation of a pregnancy is caused by rape, we have one person who is, a, who is a criminal, but a sinner. He has committed a sin, and that is the man who has raped the woman. We have two individuals that are innocent. That is the woman. None of us would say that the woman is guilty of fornication or adultery or any type of immorality because she was the victim of the rape. Because of that, we would say, since she's innocent, she doesn't deserve any punishment, any harm. She's a victim. Well, the child is also innocent. The child obviously had no role in that situation. And so to end the pregnancy, which, as we've already established, if we believe that life, believe, um, life begins at the earliest of stages, that life is valuable, then even that child 
of this that's brought about by the situation of rape is a life and a human being created in the image of God. And to end that pregnancy and to abort that baby is tantamount to killing the child for the sins of the father. And that's not scriptural. That's not what God wants. And so that's punishing the child for their father's sin. That just simply shouldn't happen. Um, From a positive aspect, and I think it's important to point out why it's wrong, but also to point out the positive aspect I hope helps as well. The Bible teaches us that children are a blessing. Um, Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And I know and we need to recognize when a woman is the victim of rape, she has suffered a, a very traumatic event She's going to need support. She's going to need help and love and service uh, from her family, from her Christian family. But one of the problems with the way our society discusses the whole issue of abortion is children are basically boiled down to consequences. Um, Whether that's the consequence of immorality or that's the consequence of a man's vile act of rape, children become consequences. But the Bible says that children are a blessing from the Lord. And even in the situation where a woman has been the victim of a heinous sin, God's blessing can still come through, even in that situation. And that child is not a curse, it is not a burden, it is not just a consequence. That child can still be a blessing. That child is still fearfully and wonderfully made, just as much as you and I, or any other child that's been born. And so... We have, one, no right to end that life. And secondly, we should appreciate and value that life as the gift from God that it is. Um, so from what I take from all that, you're basically saying two wrongs don't make a right. Absolutely. Being the, you know, the rape is the first wrong and the abortion is the wrong to right the first wrong. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's... You know, that's the basic principle that we've all learned from childhood, and um, it certainly applies in this situation as much as any other. Yeah, very good. There's a lot more arguments than you know to cover, and we're not obviously going to cover them all. We're already at the 30-minute mark, and um, what I would like to have you address is just all the the what-if, the hypotheticals that people will bring up, and there's numerous, so I mean, not necessarily even tagging one, but I mean, that actually is one of them. We just covered, you know, rape and incest. But all of these, these what-ifs, would you say they go along with that same line of thought? They're, they're usually, um, what are we going to do with orphans that are created with this if you just stop elective abortions, you know, completely? Or, or who knows what all what-ifs people will bring up? Does that just follow the same train of logic that we were just talking about? Yeah, and I, I do think that as we, if we have discussions with people about this, we need to be able to answer those questions. But one of the simplest things in my mind is for most of these what-if scenarios, it's the classic case of what you might call getting the cart ahead of the horse. You know, we use that term a lot. Um, for instance, orphans. You know, people say, "Hey, there's already you know over four hundred thousand children in foster care." on any given day. 
if we stopped all elective abortions, that number would skyrocket, and it probably would. I mean, most abortions are happening because they're unwanted pregnancies, and when you talk about millions of those, we're flooding a system that's already overwhelmed. Okay, so abortion is a good thing now because of that. And those are important discussions. I think that's something we should think about. Okay, what what needs to change? What can change? How do we help? Even as Christians, how do we help some of these other situations? Because one of the things that's been levied against people that take the right to life view is, well, you just want the child to be born, but then you don't care about their welfare after that. Well, I don't think that's fair or true. At least it shouldn't be. We should be concerned about the welfare of a child even after its birth. But I think what gets down to the foundational problem is if we can't see that a child deserves to live, then how do we think that we have answers for all of these other more complicated questions? I mean, really, this is a pretty simple question. If we take all of the what-ifs, all of the emotions out of it, does a human being have value and do they deserve to live? Hopefully, we can all arrive at the answer of yes. If we can't arrive at the answer of yes there, how do we think we're going to come up with the answers of how to take care of orphans, how to take care of children that need more financial support, all of the other problems that become the what-ifs? If we can't even get the most basic question right, we're not going to get those questions right. And so that's my position on a lot of those what-ifs, is let's talk about those, let's figure those out, Let's get the most important one fixed first, and that is this child deserves the right to breathe, the right to have life, and then let's work on the rest. you got to learn to add before you can divide. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, I thought it was very good. I think I've heard you say before, too, that just because you don't have all the answers doesn't mean we then have to you know, turn a blind eye to the most obvious answers. More, yeah. I don't, you not said that precisely, but something to, the, to that effect. Yeah, well, it um, this gets applied to the abortion debate so frequently by pro-abortion advocates. Um, you know, basically, if you don't support this, you know, if you're not adopting children, then you don't actually care about yeah. unborn babies. You know, whatever it is, there's all sorts of arguments out there. and But we don't do that with everything else. Um, Just because you haven't put all of your heart and soul and mind into curing cancer doesn't mean that you don't care about sick people. Okay? Yeah. Um, And again, it goes back to that basic. And I think it it becomes clear the more you listen to a lot of the pro-abortion arguments, a lot of them just become emotional arguments kind of grasping for any reason to maintain what that study we just mentioned a little while ago actually shows. Abortions are actually being done because people don't want their lives to be altered by children. That's the vast majority of reasons. But I think most of us, even people, even a lot of people that aren't Christian, so to speak, recognize that's not a good thing. <laughs> we shouldn't be killing children because they're inconvenient. So we have to come up with reasons. We have to find reasons to justify the practice of abortion. And that's what a lot of these what-if arguments are. One more argument that I'll just uh, bring up 
that I'll just comment on quickly, and then we want to go on to um, a solution question. But I was just watching, every once in a while, I'll watch a YouTube video that pops up, and there was one that Dr. Phil had a, a lady named Lila Rose, who was a pro-choice, a pro-life um, advocate on there, and, and he creates these discussion panels, and so there's a pro-choice person, there was Lila Rose, and um, you know, the, the pro-choice person brought up, you know, the whole my body, my right um, stance that's commonly purported by pro-choice. And Lila Rose said, you know, we're when we say that, we're circumventing the most fundamental right, and that is life itself. And the first right that every single individual has is, is life. And so when you say my body, you're that's the cart before the horse. You know, that you're, what you do with your body First of all, that's a that's a uh, redirect. But nonetheless, stay on track. What you do with your body comes after the fact of what you do with life. Period. Um, I thought that was a very good point, you know, because that is the most basic. If you could say people have rights, that's the most basic fundamental right of every single breathing cell. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's like I said. It it it's kind of an amazing argument that is taking place or debate when we're talking about pro-life or pro-abortion, because again, when it boils down, what we're arguing is whether human beings have the right to live. I mean, as Americans, that's supposed to be one of our founding principles. So this is outside of just the realm of Christianity. As Americans, we supposedly believe that, and yet we're arguing that, and we're divided um, tremendously by that actual question. Um, When you move on, and that brings up an interesting point, um, the whole my body, my choice, and I think this is important for Christians. So like we've talked about, I know this probably doesn't make, um, may not make a lot of headway with people that just aren't Christian or don't believe in the Bible. But for any Christian that is swayed by that argument, and it becomes so pervasive that it's hard to argue against maybe sometimes. Uh, Well, should we be controlling women's bodies and all of those things? But, you know, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, for the Christian-minded person says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, that's a pretty wide, widely applicable verse. But when the Christian says, my body, my choice, that's not a biblical view. The inspired Apostle Paul says your bodies are to be presented as a living sacrifice to God. In other passages in Corinthians, Paul says you are not your own. And so even if somehow we could get around that first question of does this child deserve to live, and that should be an obvious yes, even if we put that aside, the my body, my choice argument just doesn't work for the Christian. It's not my body, my choice. I am the Lord's, and what is the Lord's will? And hopefully the rest of our discussion has answered that question. Yeah. And just to be clear, so that you're not uh, creating some straw man, you know, pro-choice people are actually assuming that you know, humans do have the right to life. And they're assuming that because they, that's, what they're, that's what they're saying when they go back to say this embryo is not a life. It's not a human. Because they, they agree, you know, human beings have the right to live. And that's why they have to go back and at some point in the pregnancy— this clump of cells all of a sudden becomes alive. That's the whole debate. When does a clump of cells become alive? Because all life has the right to live. Yeah. And therefore that trumps 
what you do with your body or whatever. Um, so just, again, there are bad arguments on both sides. So don't create a, some straw man because that's not going to help uh, any type of functional discussion. Um, I wasn't talking to you, Nate. I was talking to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to sound like I was having a father-son correction. <laughs> Get Nate. Um, last question that I had, and I thought this was a pretty good question. Um, you know, I was preaching recently on, um, I wasn't preaching on abortion. I was preaching on judgment. And somehow one of the killing scenes came up in scripture where there's this mass killing. I think it was maybe an Exodus. And that always reminds me of, you know, what would have been an ancient scene of the modern scene where, where babies are killed in mass. And, um, it made me realize when I was preaching that, that there are women, you know, in the church that have had abortions and you don't know about it. You know, I don't know about it. I just, I'm absolutely hundred percent positive. They're sitting in the church pews of churches where I go preach. And, um, naturally they're not going to tell anybody that they had this abortion because there is still a stigma at least within religion, primarily at least. Um, and so there are these women that they've had these abortions. They feel guilty about it. They have some level of conscience. I think that's why they don't want to tell anybody. Um, they seek God's forgiveness. And you, I, I just can't even put myself in their shoes. It's got to be a terrible burden to bear that they know that they've sinned Maybe they did something, and they at the time they just they realized they, they were stupid, and they made a stupid decision, and they wish they could go back and fix it, but they can't. And now they're trying to grapple with the idea of would God even forgive me of this? You know, because if it is murder, I mean, you think about it, I murdered somebody, my own child. So you know, I can't. Uh, I don't want to act like either one of us can get ourselves into their shoes and say just get over it, you know, or or just accept God's forgiveness. So really and scripturally, how do we counsel those types of people in accepting God's forgiveness and working through that state of guilt and um, just mentally where they're at? Yeah, that's a really important question, um, especially for those of us that are preachers, teachers, leaders in the Lord's church, that I think we need to consider um, and be aware of. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure there are women that we've probably known and preach to from the pulpit, and we have no idea that they've either had an abortion or maybe if they've had children, that was a struggle that they had of whether to get one or not, and we never even knew that. Um, but at the the root answer, the main, the main answer is the gospel is the gospel. The gospel is the same for the liar as it is for the murderer, and the blood of Christ forgives sins. And so forgiveness is available. It's available to the person who views their sins as small. You know, oh, I only cheated on my taxes once and told a few white lies. Well, that will separate me from God as much as murder. And so I need the forgiveness of, of Christ. For the person that's done horrible, terrible things, the blood of Christ is still powerful enough to overcome even that. I think that's the point Paul's making when he calls himself the chief of sinners there in 1 Timothy 1, he's setting forth the example. Uh, Christ chose Paul to show that his mercy extends to any who are willing to accept him and to place their faith in him and to truly repent and to obey him. 
Um, now, Paul wasn't guilty of abortion, per se. Paul may not have ever actually himself taken the life of someone, but he says, he talks about the things that he had done. He had cast his vote, and that probably indicates times when Christians may have been put to death. He was obviously consenting to the murder of Stephen. So Saul of Tarsus did some pretty evil things, and yet he was forgiven. And that's true today. Um, And so the woman who has, at some point in her life, had an unplanned pregnancy, whether it was because of an immoral decision, whether it was because she was a victim, whatever the reason, and she chose to have an abortion, we'll call it what it is, that was sinful to make that choice. But she can be forgiven of that. And if she seeks If she obeys the gospel, if she repents, she will be forgiven of that. Now, dealing with that may be more difficult. And that's where, as a family in Christ, we need to have the type of relationships with one another that people can talk with one another. James tells us to confess our faults one with another. I don't think that means that a woman has to come forward and announced that she had an abortion 20 years ago that she still feels guilty about to the entire congregation. But if she's struggling with that, hopefully there's another sister at the congregation or a leader that she can speak to and talk about that and get the encouragement and the guidance that she needs. So that speaks to the rest of us as leaders, as teachers, as members of the Lord's church. We need to build relationships where people can trust us and know that when they come to us with something like this, we're not going to write them off because they committed a sin that's despicable in our eyes, and so we won't care for them. We need to love them and serve them as we would any sinner that realizes they need to make something right. Paul meant what he said, right? When he said in 1 Timothy 1.15, I am the chief of sinners. Like he meant that in the actual sense, he is the chiefest of sinners. Yes. And yet he received forgiveness. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking, practically speaking, what are some things that we can do to help foster that trust? And I was thinking, you know, somebody said a while back, it's important to foster a confessing culture in the church where you go to. And I think that's important. And I think it starts with the leaders. I think it starts with... Um, sometimes if you think about it, maybe, you know, of a, of a church leader that has never, ever said anything to the church publicly that he did anything wrong. Maybe he said something privately, but because they are front and center, they're the leaders. It's very important that if people are going to, uh, buy into a confessing culture, they've got to see the confession from their leaders, from their shepherds. And I think that that, um, when people see vulnerability from the people that are shepherding them, I think that fosters vulnerability to those same men and women. And the other thing is just that verbal affirmation. I didn't realize or think that there was as much to verbal affirmation (laughs) (laughs) as I I think now. Um, But hearing somebody say, especially a teacher, you know, who's preaching at times perhaps hell, fire, and brimstone, you know, uh, hearing that same person verbally affirm the forgiveness of God, and specifically that if you like saying it, if you have had an abortion, yes, that's sin, but you can be forgiven, and you can uh, get release and 
and help by confessing that to your brothers and sisters. It may sound like a, such a small thing, but if that if they hear that enough, perhaps they start to act, believe the truth that you actually can, and, and p- there are people to talk to you. Absolutely, yes. Um, I think you're right. As leaders, well, as a church, we need to be careful that we don't place leaders, be that congregational teachers, preachers, elders, up on a pedestal where we view them as super saints or something like that. They're Christians. They may be more mature Christians. Um, they may be more experienced Christians, but they're human beings and they're Christians just like everyone else. Um, and as leaders, we certainly should not be putting ourselves up on pedestals or trying to maintain an image that we're better than anyone else. And so, yes, when we have faults, we need to confess those just like anybody else. And I think that is helpful for the congregation to see that. But and another thing, and this is a side topic, not what we're here to discuss, but just in line with what builds that culture, I think one of the biggest needs, and this is my opinion, but in the church is we need to be more of a family in Christ. Congregations are supposed to be like a body. That's a, that's a close-knit, united relationship. They're supposed to be like a family. You know, older men as fathers, older women as mothers. We're supposed to have that type of relationship with one another in the congregation. That's not going to be developed by showing up to one or two or even three church services a week. That's going to be developed by being a part of one another's lives. Um, I'm not going to be able to earn the trust of a young sister in Christ by preaching to her for 45 minutes a couple of times a week. But by being involved, by opening my home, by just being around people, we can build those relationships. And so that's a side topic, a whole other issue. But when it comes to how do we build this culture, we just have to continue to work to function less like the modern concept of a church, you know, quote-unquote, more like the family in Christ that we are and that we're called to be. Very good. Well, we've uh, used up about all of our time, and I think at the end of it, we we covered everything that I wanted to cover. Anything that you want to add to that that maybe you you wanted to throw in there? Uh, No, I think the one thing that I'd probably reiterate, and I mentioned this earlier, but this, this whole discussion um, is the reminder that children truly are a blessing. And I think the Bible means that when it says that. And whether that child is the result of a planned pregnancy between a husband and a wife, whether that child is the result of some immoral behavior, whether that child is the result of some vile act such as rape, None of those things change the fact that that child is not only created by the biological processes that God created, but that child is a being that is created in the image of God. It is fearfully and wonderfully made. It is knit together, soul and body, in the womb by the Almighty Creator. And we should all think of it that way as Christians. And when we think of that, then we should place value on that unborn child and we should remember that throughout the life of a child and throughout the life of a being they are beings that are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of the creator and so they deserve protection they deserve love they deserve service from the earliest moments in the womb until the end of their life
Well, that's the whole enchilada, as they say. Appreciate Nate coming on. Appreciate you guys listening. As always, if you have any questions, just email me at ambatty at yahoo.com. You can also contact me by message through the Facebook page, the Instagram page. I had somebody contact me over um, one of the recent episodes, and I do appreciate that. So if you have any objections, you disagree, or you just have an addition, you'd like to hear more on something that we talked about but couldn't flesh out fuller, just let me know. As always, next time on the podcast.